Every student is unique. Every student learns differently, and every student matters. This is Idea Exchange, the future of K-12 education series, brought to you by Macmillan Paston Smith Architecture. Welcome to the future of K-12 education, summer school sessions. This is Ben Thompson with the Idea Exchange, the future of K-12 education podcast. It's a pleasure to be with you again for this next summer school series. I've asked a colleague of mine, Michelle Smith, the K-12 sector leader in our Charleston office to join this important series of podcasts. Michelle has worked in K-12 education and higher education for projects and clients over the last 20 years. She is a highly experienced designer and a thoughtful advocate for providing the best environments for students, teachers, and the communities they serve. And she's also a friend. Michelle and I were classmates in college and I'm glad that she has joined this exchange of ideas in education. You'll be pleased to meet her as well. Hi, I'm Michelle Smith. I'm an architect with Macmillan Paston Smith Architecture based out of the Charleston office and I help lead the education studio in that office. Our talk today will include Bill Stanfield from Metanoia, the nonprofit organization which works to support the local community through educational and youth leadership programs. Their work in the Lowcountry area of South Carolina can serve as a model for how nonprofit organizations can complement what students get outside of their traditional K-12 education. We all know that schools can't do it all when it comes to providing family-centered opportunities. So identifying the right nonprofits to complement educational programming is yet another way that educators, community leaders, and business leaders can partner together to address students' needs and ultimately build stronger communities around schools. Well, I'm so excited to be sitting here with Reverend Bill Stanfield, the CEO of the nonprofit organization Metanoia, located in North Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, Bill is a, is a client of Macmillan Pass and Smith Architecture, and we are excited to have him here to talk about uh, his experiences in, in North Charleston, his organization, and um, his general vision. So welcome, Bill. Thank you. We're, it's great to be here. We're so excited to have you. Yeah. You have such a great story, such a great personal story that really founds um, Metanoia. And I'd love for you to start at the very beginning. And you're originally from Greensboro, um, North Carolina. And I understand that you received your master's in divinity from Princeton, um, along with your wife, Evelyn. Mm -hmm. And there was a time uh, when you decided to relocate um, from what you were doing to North Charleston, South mm -hmm. Carolina. Sorry, North Charleston. Yeah. Right. And I know you had moved around and had some other worldly experiences. So I'd love for you to talk about how you came, how you and Evelyn came to the decision to move to North Charleston. Yeah. Thank you, Michelle. It's great to be here. And really grateful for our partnership with uh, NPS as well. So, yeah, so we started, we moved to North Charleston in 2002. Um, we really moved to take a position, but when Evelyn and I met, we met it, we did meet in seminary in Princeton and um, she's originally from Spartanburg, actually originally from Brazil and lived in Spartanburg for a while. And then we happened to meet up in the Northeast. Um, we both had a similar sort of concern for what ministry uh, needed to look like for living and working alongside marginalized communities. Um, uh, and we really feel like that's sort of from a faith perspective, that's kind of where we find God most alive. But um, so we, we moved to, uh, North Charleston, because there was a group of churches in the state of South Carolina called the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship of South Carolina that wanted to do something about poverty in the state, childhood poverty. 
So they did a demographic study of the state, and they found that the neighborhood where we now live had the highest concentration of child poverty in South Carolina. So you might be able to go to some rural parts of our state and find poorer kids, but there are more children living below the poverty line mm-hmm. in, uh, in our part of the state than anywhere else. And so they, they created a position um, to sort of do something and to help students. And they hired my wife and I to do it. And one of the things we really liked about the original job description is it didn't say go, uh, didn't say go start Metanoia or go start after school programs or go start uh, housing work or go start renovation of old schools, all of which we're working on now. It said, go and spend a year listening. Hmm. Listen to the people in the community and, and let answers emerge, you know, try to partner with who's there. Don't try to, uh, duplicate anything, um, let answers sort of emerge from the community. And so that's what we did. We arrived in 2002. We didn't start any programming until 2003, but what we did uh, really has become foundational to our work at Metanoia. And it was a process of listening, um, mm-hmm. listening to established leaders, sort of uh, city council people, principals mm-hmm. at schools, and listening to grandmothers on the block, listening to kids in the neighborhood and trying to understand um, what their concerns were, but also not just what their concerns were, what their hopes and fears were, what, uh, what are some of the good things about the community that we could sort of build on from there. I think that it is critical for you to say that you embedded yourself into the community. I think that that is provided a foundational understanding of what drives your mission. So where, where, where did you land after that? Or how did you, um, how did you get started after that year of listening? Did you start with youth programs or did you start slowly expanding into the housing initiative or what was, what were the next steps after that? We did. We started with youth programs. Um, we started, and that was because at the time there really wasn't that much sort of structured, high quality youth programming going on in the neighborhood, educational focused youth programming. So we started with after school programs because we also had sort of giftedness in that area. My wife had run educational programs in other uh, cities before. And, um, you know, as we got uh, those programs came as a result of hearing over and over again in the community, we want to see more quality, safe places for kids to be after school. So we mm-hmm. started, we built a local partnership with our uh, local church that we're now housed in, as you know, Michelle, St. Matthew Baptist Church. It's been really crucial and essential to our progress through the years. And um, it's an African-American church. I'm an associate pastor there other than myself. Um, and uh, so we built a partnership with the church and started a youth programming there. Um, and it was really our relationship with those families that drove the expansion of our work. So in, in the first year, there were a couple of young women coming to the after-school program, sort of great promise. And, um, but we thought maybe there was bedwetting issues or something because um, frankly, there was kind of an odor with them when they came to our program and mm-hmm. came come to find out that the landlord, <coughs> their absentee landlord, wasn't fixing the plumbing under their house. So they had raw sewage laying under their house and they had holes mm-hmm. in the house. So, so they had like a 800 square foot house and they had like a $450, $500 electrical bill in the, in the wintertime. So we could offer the best after school care in the world. And if those young women were going home to that, right, it's all going to be undone. So we, so out of the relationship with those young people, um, we began housing work. And then, you know, as we worked with families, you know, we understand their concerns. Uh, families say we want better jobs, better access to capital, better resources. So we started getting in economic development projects as well. And uh, so that's sort of the, the, all of our work has evolved out of, relationships and relationships are really uh, core to what we do. And, and we, we don't see ourselves as we pride ourselves in really trying to work uh, to do work with communities rather than two or four communities. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we see the community as an equal partner 
uh, as an essential partner, mm-hmm. uh, not just sort of as a client of our services, but an essential partner in what we try to do. That's great. It, that, that all sounds, I mean, incredible. And I think that what I heard you say was when you started these initial programs for, for the students, you uncovered other challenges that these families faced. So, so then they became your mission's challenges. So I'd like for you to talk a little bit about the resources that you had to uh, incorporate and discover to help complement and grow the, you know, the support system that Metanoia was providing and your organization was providing. Because, uh, you know, I think you started off with after school care. So obviously that comes with a set amount of resources that are maybe easily identifiable mm-hmm. in the beginning. But how did you how did you satisfy all these other um, initiatives and their resources like the housing? You know, tell tell us a little bit more about how who you reached out to and, and what other organizations you had to bring into the fold or people. Yeah, right. Well, it does take uh, lots of partnerships. I mean, you know, we, we view the most important, I sort of didn't mention that it's probably worth mentioning the, the underlying research uh, that we use in our work uh, was done by two sociologists at Northwestern University, John McKnight and Jody Kretzman. And they went around the country and they studied neighborhoods like mine, 300 uh, low income communities across the country, uh, where it used to be what nonprofits or ministry groups would try to do in a community like this. So you come to the neighborhood, you see a lot of problems and you say, we're here to help. So let's identify the key problems and start to fill those problems, those needs, deficiencies. And what these guys did is they looked at the aggregate indicators of success in these 300 mm-hmm. neighborhoods in terms of crime, educational attainment, and they compared that to the number of needs providers there were in the communities. The number of people with the best of intentions were trying to identify needs and fill them. And they found there was either uh, no correlation between the number of needs providers and the overall success of neighborhoods or a negative correlation hmm. between mm-hmm. the overall success of communities and, 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 and the number of needs providers. So they, wait a minute, there's no doubt these people have the best of intentions. Why is it that it seems Things don't seem to be getting better. In some cases, they seem to be getting worse. And what they realize is that what all of us really need to have success in life, uh, you, me, everybody who's listening to this podcast, um, is somebody to come alongside us and ask, not what's wrong with you, but what's right with you? And what resources do you have that we can build on here to make things better? And so so I, I say all that to say the most important resource we have uh, comes from within the community. It's the, mm-hmm. it's the knowledge, it's the uh, capabilities, it's the capacity of the neighborhood residents themselves. Right. But you're right. Uh, part of the problem has been for generations of what the McKnight and Cressman uh, research uh, sort of understood is that there's lots of resources dedicated to the community, but none of those resources or very few of those resources are going into building the capacity of their residents. They're just there when the residents have problems. Mm-hmm. And so the question becomes, how do we begin to reorient the investment in the community so that it uh, most uh, like I've lived in this neighborhood now for 20 or so years, and I didn't grow up in a neighborhood like this. I I grew up in the neighborhood your listeners think I grew up in a white upper middle class, middle class neighborhood in Greensboro, North Carolina. The leading difference between the neighborhood where I live now and the neighborhood I grew up in is the is the flow of capital It's the resources in the community where I grew up in generally flowed to resource people's capacity, to build capacity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In the neighborhood I live in now, resources show up when people demonstrate problems. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's part of the problem itself. I see. We're not, we don't invest in communities or people 
in a way that builds them up. And so it has been mm -hmm. an effort. You know, it, it, initially we kind of got an after-school program started. We started with by asking our local elementary school to recommend to us students who they thought showed leadership potential. We mm -hmm. still do this today. We have uh, leadership programming for students all the way for high school graduation and sent many kids on to college, first-generation college students. But it begins by identifying students that have uh, they have lots of risk factors. Uh, they have things that we could say negative about them, but we ask, uh, will you identify them for something positive? Mm -hmm. And we build on that. And I find that, you know, and then it's just a matter of finding, listening first to the community, finding what opportunities and capacities there are to build on, and then beginning to look around the broader society and community in Charleston. Fortunately, Charleston is a, a fairly research-rich rich environment. You know, you mm -hmm. can make those connections. So it's just trying to figure out how do we make those connections? And, uh, you know, so we have grown through the years steadily, slowly but surely. But, um, you know, we, we'll, we'll end our fiscal year, I think, Lord willing, uh, in a good position this year. And it'll start all over again on July 1, which is our new <laughs> fiscal year, you know. So we have to raise it every year. And, right. and but, um, but uh, you know, we sort of, our process has, has served us well of listening to the community, mm -hmm. identifying what they feel is most important, and then trying to resource that. And because it begins with the community, then when the resources come, they're there to meet a desire that already sort of exists. And sometimes nonprofits sort of sit back and don't listen, and they invent the problem, and then they resource the problem, and it falls flat because you didn't listen in the first place. Mm -hmm. It's like somebody coming to me and saying, well, I, I think you really need a fountain in front of your house, and we'll invest a million dollars in a fountain. And, you know, I might have some other things I'd like to pay for. But, um, but... Uh, so, so I think the, the listening part is really critical to how we have been able to generate resources and continue to have success in that area. Right. As well. That sounds great. I, I, I'm curious how you benchmark those periods of time when you listen. Like how, what is the, what is the process like in the timeline for like listening to the community and, you know, putting a program or initiative into place and then evaluating mm. uh, that, mm. that implementation mm -hmm. you know what is what is the benchmark for success in that in that process and is is it is it like a, a living type of process is it constantly going change is it yearly you think quarterly or it, it just depends on what the initiative might be yeah it's, it's interesting you ask that because we are sort of uh, organizationally we're really asking some of those questions ourselves right now what, what i would say about listening in particular is it is a um daily task. It's, it's never a, it's never going to be a box that we check and say, okay, we finished that now. You know, there are times there are uh, efforts to listen. You know, we might we'll be talking about a, an old school renovation in a minute. There are efforts to listen to that where we had charrettes and we talked to the community and that kind of thing. Those sort of have a beginning and an end, but the process of needing to continue to listen never ends. Um, but there is a point where you do have to sort of like say, okay, well, we've listened now. And there does seem to be enough of, we're not going to quit listening, but there does seem to be enough kind of momentum and, and thought and critical mass here to be able to begin an initiative. And, and so we've oftentimes done that very entrepreneurially, um, sort of pieced it together as we go and, and then try to understand as we go also what kind of nonprofit speak, what outcomes, what are we trying to achieve and how we measure whether or not we're actually doing that well. And we, you know, for young people, it may be grades or it may be some other sort of um, demonstrable uh, sign of progress. Are our students performing a little better than they, their peers at the school that aren't engaged in our programming, that kind mm -hmm. of thing. 
for housing, it's easy to kind of count the housing or to even more so look at crime on a street where housing went, uh, went in and how it went down um, uh, or maybe survey the families and see how they've done, right. you know. And so there are lots of opportunities to sort of measure that. But I, I think it's important to sort of note that the listening is really core to who we are and what we try to be about. And it, it never, I, I find that you know, it's, it's really important for all of our team, myself uh, foremost and everybody else, uh, to show up every day as learners. Mm-hmm. You know, we're talking about That's education. Right. And um, I feel like the best teachers, the best educators uh, are good learners themselves. And they haven't sort of said, oh, I quit the learning after I got my degree or I quit the learning five, after my five years teaching experience or whatever. No, I'm showing up every day as a learner. Sure. And, um, and that's really critical to sort of our, I think, our success as well. That's great. That's great. As an architect, I always feel like I'm learning. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's always changing, Especially. right? It's, Absolutely. It's, it's changes the one constant. So. Absolutely. I do want to ask another follow-up question Mm -hmm. because you talked, you touched a little bit about, touched on this when you were talking about your background. I would like to understand what pushback you may have received from the community, Mm. especially when you were starting. Mm -hmm. You are a Caucasian male. Yeah, you noticed, right? And you live primarily in in an African-American community. Mm -hmm. I have... I have seen you um, interact with this community at some of the jubilees that mm-hmm. Metanoia has had. And it is so inspiring to see this community uh, just see you with trust mm-hmm. and love, trust in their eyes and love in their hearts. Mm-hmm. And I'm amazed by how you have been able to embed yourself in that mm-hmm. and, and, and really gain the trust of people. Can you talk a little bit about any pushback that you may have received in the beginning and how you overcame that um, and how you work to continue to foster that, that trust? Yeah, well, I think it's, you know, um, in Charleston, South Carolina, in our country, you know, race and racism, uh, you know, is, is such a prominent um, issue. It flows through everything. And so it, you can't be naive about uh, sort of cross-cultural issues and, and the history of people that look like me w- alongside people that look like the people in our community, sort of white-bodied people versus black-bodied people. Um, so I, I think for me, what's been most important, several things have been really important in building that trust. Um, you know, and, and I would say that, like, as a general rule, um, it's been a tremendous sign of grace to me um, that how much people have accepted me. Like, I don't blame anyone for saying, I don't know if I'm going to trust that guy. Mm-hmm. Um, that seems like a pretty natural reaction when I understand what I understand about the history of race in Charleston, South Carolina, North Charleston, South Carolina. It's a pretty re- natural reaction to be like, I don't think I'm going to trust that guy. What's his real motives? And um, so like then, and I can't control what anybody else really thinks, right? But I can control what I do. And so I think what, you know, to the degree we've been able to build trust, and I think we have, thanks to the grace and uh, concern of people in our community, it has gone back to that listening thing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it goes back to showing up every day as a learner. Mm-hmm. It goes to understanding that um, I have to be about a work in my own life. And I think this is really critical for education more broadly too, that people that look like me, it is not just a matter of getting uh, black kids uh, into my sort of worldview and bucket. I need to enter into theirs. I need to be, you know, you, you can grow up white. You can look like me in Charleston, South Carolina and never have to be bicultural. You can be plenty successful and never have to 
to learn how to operate, which is sort of what you were saying, I think, a minute ago. You, you look like you've learned to operate mm-hmm. in two different cultures. And um, you can, you know, but uh, anybody who comes from uh, a black or brown cultural mm-hmm. background has to learn how to be bicultural. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to learn how to operate in your own host, you know, your family's culture, your community's culture, and the sort of white dominant culture. So what we ask of our white staff, our white board members, those who come, is we say, you know, here, white person, you're going to have to be bicultural. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to learn how to slow down enough, how to listen enough, have to show up enough as a learner mm-hmm. to learn how to operate in this culture and not be passing judgment on it as soon as you arrive, not be saying I'm here to bring my solutions that work for me or for my culture, but to really listen and then look for the commonalities and you know get to know people beyond just the skin color and let them know you beyond that, um, but also keep it real, like uh, understand, you know, educate yourself on mm-hmm. uh, the history that a community like mine doesn't get to be the way it is just by accident. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, the responsibility to educate myself about why it is what it is and not to place the blame on the people who are bearing the symptoms of those problems, but to actually look at the problems themselves and, and try to address those as well. Wow. That's really compelling. Thank you. It's amazing. Um, I would like to switch gears a little bit and bring us more into the present and talk about the project that brought us together. Uh, Can you start from the beginning and uh, tell us the story about how you were inspired to embark on this particular project? Sure. Uh, Well, so the the beginning of this project begins with another sort of effort. Um, So years ago, our our school district decided it was going to close... the Chikora Elementary School, which is an old historic elementary school, started being built in the late 1930s through the 1950s. Um, you know this campus very well by now, Michelle. And um, so we didn't, the school sits right in the heart of the neighborhood, part of asset-based community development, which is what we call our work. It's a, a focus on strengths rather than deficits, is to say, you know, where, where are the assets? Where are the strengths within the community that we need to preserve or build on? And this school was a strength. And so, so we led a campaign in the community uh, to get a new school built. Um, and, you know, we had a one parent who would tell you today she's bipolar. She had some addiction issues from her past, but we, we caught her on, on the upswing and she went out in front of our local grocery store and got 1,200 signatures. And we, we got a new school built, just sort of like a, you know, you can see it from the old school. And um, as a part of that deal, the city thankfully went out and bought land for the new school property. And, the, and then the, the city gave the school district, well, the city and the school district swapped. So this is the city. Uh, gave the school district the land for the new school, mm-hmm. which sits right beside the old school, basically. And then the city took over the old school, and it just sort of sat for a few years. Mm-hmm. And um, so people got into it, took the wiring out of it, that kind of thing. So it sort of fell into disrepair. Um, but it sits right in the heart of our neighborhood. And, you know, you our, live right across the street. I from live it. right more or less across the street from it on the same street as it. Um, and uh, so, you know, I see it every day. You're right. I see it every day when I leave my home. And um, so, you know, Part of our work is has to do with kind of the metaphorical pair of glasses we put on in the morning to do it. Do we do we see our community as a glass half empty or as a glass half full? And you can definitely see that school as a glass half empty, but we want to try to see it as a glass half full. What what if we could invest in this asset? What return could it generate from the community? So um, so we started to sort of dream about it, talk to the city about it, 
Um, I'm sure you listened. <laughs> we listened. We, we worked with uh, Clemson's architectural program, mm -hmm. has a, a sort of a satellite campus in Charleston. Uh, their professor, Ray Huff, has been fantastic. Um, brought a set of students out. We had a series of shreds and did some listening processes with the community. Identified, you know, there were, there were things that the community wanted to see happen in the school that, you know, we listened to kids in the neighborhood. They came up with all kinds of ideas about, you know, uh, swimming pools throughout it or whatever, mm -hmm. you know. Those are the things the community Slides. might want to see happen, <laughs> right, that, that maybe weren't going to be possible. Um, there were things that are e that were pretty, would might be easy to do with an old building like that. They would pay for the old building like that, but they really weren't in service to the community. You know, mm -hmm. we could flip the whole thing, turn it into, especially in Charleston now, turn it into class A office, cool looking office space, but it wouldn't be for the neighborhood anymore. So we had to find the overlap between what does the community want and what sort of generates the right number of resources uh, to actually make this renovation possible so that the asset can then benefit the people who are in the community now. Sure. Mm -hmm. And so in that year of listening, we identified uh, a few different uses. Uh, one was an early childhood education facility that uh, Metanoia sort of operate, um, some artist studios that has a beautiful old auditorium in it. Um, so a performing arts center along with taking some classrooms and making artist studios out of them. And then as you remember, Michelle, the original uh, sort of third purpose was some uh, office space for a nonprofit that does kind of financial literacy, housing education, that kind of mm -hmm. thing. Counseling, that evolved, yeah. but uh, that's sort of where we started. And all those things came out of, we have a list of things that sort of the community said uh, they'd like to see possible. And, you know, we're, we're just sort of focused on that list of, and how would these things benefit the community? That's right. So. And I remember through the process, you approached different entities to support each one of those programs. Like I That's remember right. you, we, we've talked with Redux in town in Charleston, right. just to think about how to develop the artist studio piece. Right. You talked with other theater groups. I, I remember mm -hmm. um, some were private uh, right. in, in researching uh, the tenant use for the, for the building. So you obviously did a lot of, you know, research and reaching out to business leaders That's right. to, to encourage them and think about how they could support the, support the programs within. So the process of developing the project has gone through several stages because of just various events. And mm -hmm. I, I would like to talk about those events because it really speaks to the resiliency of your vision mm -hmm. for the project. Mm -hmm. The original nonprofit tenant that you just referenced had a tragic mishap of events. They basically, if I remember correctly, were uh, evicted from their current space before they had the opportunity to move move into yeah, the renovated less, building. Right, yeah. So they had to pull out their support for occupying the space right. within they, the They project. had to move too soon, so they, they ended up trying to find, having to find another space to sort of work right, with them. Right. They couldn't use ours. That's right. And that, I remember, occurred probably in the later in the design development construction mm -hmm. document phase mm -hmm. for the project. Mm -hmm. And then you pivoted very quickly mm -hmm. and you found uh, two, at least two potential uh, school occupants, mm -hmm. uh, one charter school who seemed to make it fit. So we, as a group, we um, brought them into the fold, listened to what their needs were, uh, made the revisions to the actual documents as required. And that was, that ended us, that took us through the end of 2019, That's right. if I remember correctly. That's right. So we were, the team was all prepared. We also had a general contractor, mm -hmm. um, Trident Construction on board, who mm -hmm. was helping us through the process. And um, February of 2020 came along 
And I believe that same week we had just submitted the permit documents for the project. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When what happened, Bill? February 8th, I will not forget it. Um, I got a call at 2 a.m. Um, one of our board members who loves, who does live directly across the street from the school. Many, most of our board or many of our board members at Metanoia uh, live in the community. And um, he said, uh, Bill, the school's on fire. And uh, so I walked over in the middle of the night and, you know, there's, there's lots of different ranges of what could be happening when somebody says a school's on fire from a small, you know, thing in one, one corner to like a major fire. And this was a major fire. Uh, so somebody probably had sort of gotten into school that night. It was cold and they were trying to keep warm or something. Um, and there's this large 300 seat auditorium, which was really kind of the crown jewel of the property is where right. the fire began. And, uh, and it, uh, completely destroyed the auditorium mm -hmm. and it, then it leapt into a couple of classrooms and did a lot of damage there. Thankfully our fire department did a really heroic job of containing it. It mm -hmm. could have been much worse. Um, but, uh, you know, it's uh, it was a really uh, tough thing to have gotten as close that, as we to had gotten yeah. to the sort of uh, finished slash new start, line, the that's new right. starting that's line, right. the construction it's phase. That's right. Um, you're right. All the sort of drawings <laughs> were done. We were ready to. Um, we were just about to close on all the financing within 30 days of that date, and um, and that uh, put everything. You know, as a giant screech, uh, put everything on hold, right. and um, we were really fortunate that uh, not long at all before maybe two weeks before that fire occurred because uh we were about to start construction we had just uh, bound the full insurance sort of package for the property mm -hmm. um, and uh, we're still working through that process of uh, getting insurance uh, to sort of pay in full what we feel like is, is owed there um but uh you know we were really fortunate to you know i think a lot of this sort of asset-based approach applies to life in general for me um mm -hmm. There's every moment of every day, every one of your listeners right now has a pile of things they can look at as, as a reason why life has no, um, you know, it's, it's not fulfilled, it's uh, troublesome, it's difficult, but we also uh, have lots of things that are given to us or gifts in life that we can look at and say, no, this is worth keeping on and, and, and actually we're really pretty blessed. And, you know, just because just we have our own breath, mm -hmm. uh, that's kind of a miracle in and of itself. And so, so trying to look around in the midst of a, what it was a pretty desperate situation and say, all right, what do we have here? You know, we have a great architectural team. We have a good contractor. We have knowledge. We have support. We were really thankful, really uh, grateful that um, almost all of our kind of philanthropic donors to the project stuck, have stuck with us um, even through today. Um, even those who, who needed to sort of press pause said, you know, I, I'm around. I want to hear more and I want to see how this goes and we're going to be supportive of you, you know, I sort of got some questions about this because I don't know what's going to happen here, which is I certainly understood. Mm -hmm. I feel the same way many days, um, but they were sort of uh, emotionally supportive as well, even if they needed to press pause on their philanthropic giving for a moment. And so, so yeah, so we found a lot of blessings in the midst of that struggle as well. And uh, that's so. incredible to hear. Is, is that what you and I have seen? I've heard you talk about this, or I've seen this—the old Chicora grit. It is embedded. Is that what you think it makes up that um, that resilient nature to, to the project? And I think so. You know, and, and, and Metanoia for me has been a real uh, it's been the best education I've ever received. I've got good degrees from good schools, but um, it's been the best living in my community. My residents, my neighbors uh, have been the best uh, sort of educators I've ever had. And uh, that's sort of the principal lesson has been, mm -hmm. you know, how do you keep up, get up and keep going? Right. Um, Day after day. Day after day, yeah. in the midst of difficult circumstances. Mm -hmm. And um, 
So, you know, as you know, Michelle, like we, we really got pretty close, like actually even after the fire to piecing together the financing all again. Right. Uh, the summer after the fire, last summer. Right. Um, and then because of COVID. That's right. That nice. education tenant who was really an act, uh, sort of an anchor tenant, they had a primary sort of philanthropic donor themselves that was coming into the picture. And that person stepped back because of COVID mm-hmm. concerns and was the school mm-hmm. going to even be there and da, da, da. And so then the financing just sort of uh, went kaput because he was supposed to be bringing a, a significant sort of contribution to that piece. And so, so yeah, so then we uh, really had to sort of step back and now mm-hmm. we're in the midst of vetting. Uh, we've in the past year vetted several new tenants for that one wing of the school. The other planned uses are good and um, sort of redesigning just this week. We've finished some roof repairs. repairs. That's right, right over the fire the damaged uh, yeah. portion of the classroom wing. Um, just small stuff at this point. We're waiting all the financing come back together. But, um, you know, one thing is certain, uh, it will take more than what has happened to get us to quit, um, which <laughs> seems kind of crazy. Uh, if you had told me all that was going to happen when this project first started, I might not have started, but we, here we are, you know, and, and, and there's, I'm convinced. <laughs> there's so many lessons in it, you know, mm-hmm. apart from the construction Apart from what I still believe is going to be a beautiful campus that's going to serve uh, young people and many people in our community in, in a positive way, um, there's so many lessons in it. If we just Absolutely. have eyes to see, ears to hear, what those lessons can be, you know, they can be applied apart from that campus, but in the rest of life too. And that's what you know. That's what education is. It's 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 showing up in life in a learner and and taking the lessons that are handed to you, you know, and and learning from them. There are our, our difficult situations are oftentimes our best teachers. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That's great. And I, I know I have uh, seen those lessons at work myself, mm-hmm. you know, through this project. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a younger architect, but there aren't many projects that bring tears to my eyes. Mm-hmm. And this one did. I remember. Yeah. And um, so the, the lesson personally for me is just to believe in, 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 in our clients and mm-hmm. to listen and let them show you and lead you the way in their vision and adopt it as your own. So from that standpoint, uh, Bill, I'm grateful that we have developed this relationship with you. So Bill, uh, if our, if our listeners would like to learn more about Mednoia and its organization and its, uh, and to support it and possibly how to impact their own communities, um, would you please tell our vis- listeners where they should, where they should go? Sure. I'm going to give two websites, actually. Uh, one is Metanoia's website. It's uh, metanoiasc.org, um, uh, M-E-T-A-N-O-I-A-S-C.org. Um, and the other is if people have particular interest about that the school project, there is a website for that school. You can link to it through our website, too, but it's oldchikora.com. So uh, oldchikora.com, all one word. And uh, so people are, are welcome to come there. And if folks want to learn about our work or support our work, they can go to those websites and, and find out more. Or if they just want to contact us because uh, they're interested in doing something similar in their own communities, they're welcome to uh, go there and find our contact information, reach out to me or others on our team, and we'll do all we can to help. Great. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Idea Exchange, the future of K-12 education podcast series is brought to you by Macmillan Pastant Smith. The K-12 studio at Macmillan Pastant Smith is focused on helping schools prepare future-ready students. Have a question or a topic you'd like to address? Please complete the contact form listed in the episode description. Thanks for tuning in to Idea Exchange, the future of K-12 education series. This series is recorded at Bramble Jam Studios in Greenville, South Carolina. Remember to subscribe so you don't miss our next episode.